Often it seems like we're alone during life's difficult times. This is especially true when we're blind to the realities of God and are engulfed in spiritual darkness. However, by the prophet Elisha's example, we can see that turning to God in prayer provides all the spiritual light we need against the forces of evil. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're currently studying the life of the prophet Elisha, as found in 2 Kings. This week marks the end of our first half of study called The Miracle Worker. As you may be aware, we're all in spiritual danger from the worldly desires of self, money, entertainment, sex, power, and greed. Well, Phil, today you'll talk about spiritual warfare, and that's a title that has a lot of misunderstood meanings. Can you give us a more biblical definition of what spiritual warfare is? Well, you're right, Mark. People do have a lot of strange ideas about spiritual warfare today. Basically, it is that unseen spiritual warfare between the Holy Spirit and all of the angels of God and Satan on the other side with all of his demons, the fallen angels. And I suppose there are two main errors we can make in thinking about this. One is to be so intimidated by the forces of spiritual evil that we're blaming Satan for everything that goes wrong in the world. And But yet then there's another danger, and that is not recognizing these spiritual realities and standing strong in the spiritual weapons that God has given to us in the war for our faith. Well, we're going to hear how Elisha was protected by God when it came time to do battle with evil. How has God defended people from spiritual darkness in our times? Well, Mark, I think it's so important to understand that our defense is in spiritual weapons. The Word of God, which the Bible itself describes as the sword of the Spirit. Prayer, which gives us access to the almighty power of Almighty God. And instead of seeking ministry success in terms of numbers of people coming to our churches, instead of pursuing political power for the Christian church, we do the work of the kingdom of God through the Word of God and through prayer. Those are the powerful weapons that God has given to His church in the world. Hmm. Well, thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 6 and listen to God's Word for us today. We come to a portion of Elisha's ministry which contains two strange episodes. And the first seems almost trivial, but we should say at least something about it. It is the miracle of the floating axe head. The story begins, as you'll notice, in verse 1 with very good news. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Well, that is good news. Just a few years before, you may recall, Elijah thought that he was the only believer left in the whole kingdom. And yet now there has been a recovery of biblical faith and enrollment at the seminary is booming and the student body comes to ask for a bigger chapel. And the seminary believed in hands-on training. And so when the building program began, everyone pitched in to help cut the timber. They went to the Jordan River, verse 4, and began to cut down trees. But then disaster struck. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. 
And at this point, it helps to understand how expensive an iron blade was in those days. It was the best of tools. By way of comparison, you might imagine borrowing a table saw from a friend and then watching it bounce out of your pickup truck into the Schuylkill River or something like that. I mean, it really was a disaster. And if this young prophet was like most students, he could barely scrape together enough money to pay for his tuition. So when he saw that axe head whizzing through the air and splashing into the watery depths, he had a very sinking feeling. Oh, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. Well, it was a good thing that these young prophets had invited Elisha to come along because he had performed already at least ten miracles. And now he is ready to perform an eleventh. The man of God asked, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. And the man reached out his hand and took it. This miracle shows the supernatural power of God. And as is usually the case, some scholars have tried to explain it away through some natural cause. Maybe the stick was magnetized, they say. Or Elisha sort of fished it out with a stick, even though the Scripture says very clearly that he threw the stick into the river. And everyone knows that a chunk of iron will sink right to the bottom of a river and stay there, Unless, of course, by his supernatural power, God overrules the laws of nature, those laws which he established in the first place and by which he himself is not limited. On occasion, God overrules those laws of nature, sometimes in a miraculous way, to deliver his people and to show his glory. And when he does it, he always does it to save his people. And It's all very well to say that this is a very trivial miracle until, of course, it is the table saw that you borrowed that falls into the bottom of a river. And then, of course, it seems like a matter of life and death, causing an accident, losing someone else's property, falling into debt, finding yourself on the precipice of financial ruin. These are the kinds of personal crises which make us sick at heart and on occasion cause us to doubt the love of God. And yet God knows exactly what you need, even if it is nothing more than an iron blade. And he loves to save his faithful people when they call upon him for help, even on occasion in miraculous ways. Now, the next episode in this chapter can hardly be considered trivial. It is the story of Elisha at Dothan, where God delivered a small army into the hands of a single prophet. And there is also a story behind the story, where here we get a glimpse of that great unceasing war between heaven and hell. And therefore, this episode teaches the believer how to wage spiritual warfare. The war began when the king of Aram was leading his raiding parties across the border into Israel. And as they moved from camp to camp, they tried to set up an ambush. But unfortunately for them, the Jews always seemed to be one step ahead. And by the time the Arameans got to the place where they were going, the Jews had all disappeared. 
And the reason was because Elisha was in charge of Israeli intelligence. Verse 9, he sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place, and time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard. It was almost as if Elisha had the king bugged. By the Spirit of God, he knew in advance what the Arameans were planning to do even before they actually did it, and it happened over and over again. So one scholar refers to Elisha as Israel's best line of defense. The whole scene was rather hilarious. The one who had trouble seeing the humor in it, of course, was the king of Aram. He could tell that there was a sort of security leak within his cabinet, and he wanted to know who the traitor was. He summoned his officers in, and he asked them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us. My lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. By the Spirit of God, Elisha was privy to the king's pillow talk. Well, when the king knew that Elisha was the culprit, the fight escalated into spiritual warfare. Go and find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. It is not entirely clear what good the king thought this would do. See, his whole problem was that he doesn't know where Elisha is, but Elisha knows exactly where he is. And yet he is going to send his soldiers to find Elisha. Nor is it clear what he would do with Elisha when he found him. Perhaps he wanted to capture him and involve him in counterintelligence, or perhaps he wanted simply to kill him. What is clear is that Elisha was in great danger, humanly speaking. And this is the first of four lessons about waging spiritual warfare. And that is to recognize the danger. God's enemies will stop at nothing to silence the word of God. And of course, that is exactly what the king of Aram wanted to do. He wanted to shut Elisha up. The only thing that was preventing him from carrying out his evil designs was the word of God spoken by the prophet of God. Therefore, once the king of Aram knew where to find Elisha, he sent a whole military detachment to seize him. The report came back. He is in Dothan, and the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. There is something almost comical about sending so many soldiers to capture a single spy. This is the way the enemies of God operate. They think that the only way to get anything done is to show brute force. And of course, the same strategy was followed by the Roman soldiers when they came to seize Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Scripture says that even though Jesus was unarmed, they sent a large crowd armed with swords and clubs to arrest him, even though truly all the armies in the world could not defeat the Son of God. This is the way the world operates. This is the way the world thinks of power. It thinks in terms of raw, brute force. And When morning dawned, the city of Dothan was surrounded. It was a small city, 
on a small hill in the middle of a flat plain, and so it was an easy city to encircle. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And Elisha's servant did what I suppose anyone would do in this circumstance. He panicked. Oh, my Lord, he said. The servant recognized that he and Elisha were in very great physical danger. You know, Christians suffer similar opposition to this very day. The enemies of God make their plans for evil, and when they do not get their way, and particularly when they are frustrated by the preaching of the Word of God, they become very angry. So we find in various ways in our culture that there is hostility on the street corner. There is hostility over the airwaves and in the classroom and in the workplace and in the marketplace, even on occasion from the government. The opposition is even fiercer in many other parts of the world where our brothers and sisters are persecuted and even martyred for their faith. God's enemies will stop at nothing to silence God's Word. And then, behind these outward forms of opposition, there are spiritual forces of evil arrayed against God's work in the world. We well know that Satan received his death blow on the cross, but he has not for that reason ceased striving to rule the world. So the scripture says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The way to wage spiritual warfare is first to recognize these dangers. Robert Linthicum writes about the oppressive spiritual darkness that he sensed when he visited the city of Calcutta. He didn't understand why he felt so oppressed and discouraged until he learned about Kali, the Hindu goddess to whom Calcutta is dedicated. This is what he writes, Kali is the goddess of darkness, evil, and destruction in the Hindu pantheon. Once I understood this, I understood Calcutta. I could finally identify the ominous, profoundly dark, and permeating impression I had felt since I had first entered the city. The spirit of Kali, like a malevolent power, possessed and hovered over her city. The urban world's worst poverty, the indignity in which street people were forced to live, and the way the rich disregarded it all now made sense. For a profoundly evil presence brooded over this city and held it in her thrall. You see, Linthicum was able to sense the spiritual danger of the city which he visited. And it is well for us to ask ourselves if we can sense the danger in our own city, the danger that is all around us. The Bible does not say in so many words that individual demons are assigned to every city and to every nation, but Engaging in spiritual warfare begins with recognizing that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. And it is not hard to name the spiritual powers of our own age, self, money, entertainment, sex, power, greed, 
These are spiritual realities. They are every bit as real as the pew upon which you sit this morning. And if you want to see how real they are, you need only look at the devastating effect that they have upon our families or upon our churches or upon our cities or upon the nations of the world. There are times when we think about these things when it is easy to feel outnumbered. It is tempting to look at all the armies arrayed against the people of God, both the seen and the unseen armies, with all of their horses and chariots, and to say, My Lord, what shall we do? Well, in such an occasion, Elisha, the man of God, was not afraid, not in the least. Presumably, he knew full well about the danger he was in. Presumably, he knew about this danger because he knew about all of the movements of the Arameans, and he knew them very likely even before the servant came to tell him what was happening. And yet, all he says is, do not be afraid. What was it that Elisha could see which lay beyond the vision of his servant? Well, Elisha could see the countless hosts of the army of the living God. He had seen them before. He had seen them when Elijah was taken up into heaven with fiery chariots, and he could see them again now on this occasion when his life was in danger. And this is a second lesson about engaging in spiritual warfare, and that is that God has an innumerable, invincible army. And that is why Elisha had no fear. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In other words, even though I realize that there are only two of us, and it looks like there are about a thousand of them, nevertheless, we have them outnumbered. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, the minions of Satan are always badly outnumbered. The innumerable, invincible army of God is mentioned many times in Scripture. David, as you know, was interested in military strategy, and so on one occasion he tried to take account of the heavenly host. He wrote in Psalm 68, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. In other words, they are beyond count. David knew also that this mighty host is at the disposal of every believer. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Psalm 34, if you make the most high your dwelling place, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, Psalm 91. And this is the biblical teaching about guardian angels. Wherever you are, wherever you go, if you are a child of God, then you have this supernatural protection watching over you at every step and at every point along the way. And what this means is that what Elisha saw at Dothan was not unusual. Now, it was unusual for him to see it, of course. For few of us have ever seen the army of God in all of its fiery splendor, but it was not unusual for that army to be there. It is always there. God has countless 
hosts at his dispatch. John Milton spoke of the thousands whom at God's bidding speed. And these innumerable, invincible angels are gentle enough to care in the most tender way for all God's children. And yet they are also fierce enough to defend us against the foe. If only we could perceive that mighty army which is all around us. This is what David Roper wrote in his comments on these verses. There is a realm of reality more actual, more factual, more substantial than anything we can see, hear, touch, taste, or smell in this world. It exists all around us, not out there somewhere, but here. There are legions of angels at our disposal for which earth's forces have no countermeasures. God and his squadrons of angels are everywhere around us. We cannot see them with our natural eyes, but whether we see them or not, they are there. And who can tell what seraphim, what cherubim might be among us this morning? Who can say what countless infantry and cavalry are at our disposal this very morning. For the angels of God are always present to protect us and to defend us and to comfort us, and as the Scripture says, to guard us in all our ways. And if that is true, there suggests to our minds one obvious question. How come we can't see them? Where are they? If these angels truly exist, how come we never see them singing up in the balcony or flying along beside us along the highway to protect us? And the answer lies in a third lesson about spiritual warfare, and that is that spiritual battle is joined through prayer. Prayer is the gateway into that unseen world of spiritual reality. And if we find that we do not have very much experience of angels or of demons, the answer may be because we do not know very much about prayer. That is how Elisha's servant came to see spiritual reality. It was through prayer. The servant saw the Aramean army surrounding the city. He thought he had seen all that there was to see, and that's why he was afraid. But he couldn't see the half of it. That is why the prophet of God prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. God answered Elisha's prayer. The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And what the servant saw with his own eyes was an army of angels dressed for battle, mighty and glorious. Some scholars, of course, have tried to say that he saw something else. Gwillem Jones, for example, says that the boy who was under an emotional stress had a psychological experience. Well, no doubt it was a sort of psychological experience, but that is both bad theology and bad psychology. But the truth is, 
that Elisha prayed, the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw an army of angels. There is a clue about what he saw in the word in the Hebrew. The word hill is actually in the singular, not in the plural, as we find it in the New International Version. That means that the horses and chariots were not somewhere on the surrounding hills. They were on the very hill upon which Elisha and his servant were standing, and they were standing guard between the prophet and his enemies. And this is the power of prayer in spiritual warfare. Prayer enables the believer to see things as they actually are. The horses and the chariots were there all along, but in order for the servant to see them the way that Elisha could, his eyes needed to be opened by the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the reasons that there is such power in prayer. For the moment that the believer falls to his knees in prayer, he enters into the heavenly court and there to pray to God and to address him in person in the presence of all of his angels. And anyone who desires to pull back the veil from earthly things and to gaze into spiritual reality must pray the way that Elisha prayed, O Lord, open my eyes. A few years ago, we received at this church a letter from one of our missionaries, and it described the miraculous deliverance of a medical missionary. The man served a small field hospital in Africa, and when he traveled by bicycle every two weeks to get supplies from a major city, he had to camp overnight in the jungle. And he writes, on one of these journeys, I arrived in the city to purchase medicine and supplies, and I was approached by a young man I had treated two weeks earlier. He said, some friends of mine and I followed you into the jungle knowing that you would camp overnight. and We were going to kill you and take your money and drugs. But just as we were about to move into the campsite, we observed and counted 26 armed guards standing around you. At this I laughed and said that I was certainly all alone out in that jungle campsite. The young man pressed the point and said, No, sir, I was not the only person to see guards. My five friends also saw them, and we all counted them. It was because of those 26 guards that we left you alone. You see, like Elisha, the missionary was surrounded by that invincible army of God. But that is only half of the story. For when the missionary went to his home church to explain what happened, one of the men jumped to his feet and interrupted my story, he writes. He asked me, sir, can you tell me the exact day that this incident happened? When I gave the date, the man who had interrupted me told this story. On the night of your incident in Africa, it was morning here, and as I was putting my golf clubs in the car, I felt the Lord leading me to pray specifically for you. In fact, the urging was so strong that I called several men of the church together to meet with me here in this sanctuary to pray for you. And then he asked, would all those men who met with me on that morning please Stand up. And the men who met and prayed and then stood on that morning numbered exactly 26. 
And you see, this is the way that spiritual warfare is won. This is the way that spiritual battle is engaged and then won by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is through the prayers of the people of God, then being answered by God through the ministrations of his angels and through their guardian protection. And when God does that, what may at first appear like apparent defeat ends up in certain victory. With such a mighty army to defend him, Elisha easily won this battle, and he did it in a way that teaches us a final brief lesson about waging spiritual warfare, and that is very simply, love your enemies. While the servant's eyes were opening, the eyes of the Arameans were closing, and as the enemy came toward him, this is verse 18, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. One of the things that's very humorous about this passage is that if you look back in verse 13, what the king of Aram actually told his soldiers to do was to go and see. Well, they went, but now they can no longer see. Literally, their eyes were dazzled. And now they were as blind to physical realities as they had been to spiritual realities. And at this point, Elisha begins to have a little fun with them. With his tongue very firmly planted in his cheek, he volunteers to serve as their scout. He tells them, this is not the road, this is not the city, follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. Scholars have agonized over whether Elisha was right to lie like this, but notice that Elisha did exactly what he said he would do. He led the Arameans right to the man they were looking for. He led them to Samaria, and after they entered the city, Elisha said, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria with Elisha standing before them. Although, of course, now the circumstances were very much changed. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? The way that the king repeats himself shows what a bloodthirsty man he was. He wanted vengeance, and his attitude is all too common in the contemporary church. Christians aren't just content to get mad. Very often they want to get even. They want to get economic power or political power or even military power over their enemies. But Elisha knew that when it comes to spiritual warfare, God calls for mercy, not for slaughter. Do not kill them. He answered, would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? The answer is no. Even if the Arameans were prisoners of war, it would be wrong to kill them. And so Elisha says, set food and water before them. And he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, they returned to their master and they stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is how Elisha made peace for a time between Israel and Syria. He made them sit down to a meal together in order to make a covenant of peace between the two nations. And the way that Elisha treated the Arameans is in keeping with the proverb, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
And it is also in keeping with that command of our Lord Jesus Christ, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In fact, what Elisha did ought to remind us very much of the gospel. The gospel is a story about God, who is the great king over all the earth, the great king against which from the very moment of our birth we found ourselves to be enemies. And yet, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You see, God used against us the ultimate weapon of spiritual warfare, the weapon of love. And he loved us enough to send his own son to reconcile us to him so that we would no longer be his enemies, but that we would be his friends. And then he did what Elisha did with these Arameans. He invites us, as he does in the Lord's Supper, to sit down with him and to have a feast with him and to make a covenant meal of peace between the king and his former enemies. Now God wants us to treat all of those whom we might consider to be our enemies the same way that he has treated us. He wants us to love them. He does not desire us to win the world for Christ by brute force or by angry words, but through the power of the ultimate spiritual weapon, the weapon of God's love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We ask that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would teach us how to pray so that we might see and perceive and understand the great spiritual power which you have aligned in our defense. And we ask that you would teach us to live such loving lives that others might be won over by the grace of your love through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.